0: Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage.
1: It's not only
2: inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American.
0: My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Welcome to this edition of Cultural Baggage. My name is Dean Becker. Today we'll hear from several guests in kind of a magazine format. We'll hear from Al Byrne of Patients Out of Time, who's helping to put together a conference out in Santa Barbara, the International Conference on Cannabis Therapeutics. We'll hear from Terry Nelson, a former Border Patrol agent and current member of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition about what's going on in Nuevo Laredo, the gangster slayings. And first up, we'll hear from pain doctor Frank Fisher.
3: I'm a Harvard-trained general practitioner, Back in 1999, I was doing a little pain control and the Attorney General of California mistook me for the biggest drug dealer he ever thought he busted. tried to put me away for 245 years to life and he's kept me out of practice for seven years. I'm just now returning uh, older and wiser and I understand that the prescription of controlled substances is only de facto legal. Actually, these controlled substances that do so much good to people in pain are like little time bombs, and law enforcement can come back any time and say, Doctor, you committed a crime and we're going to have to lock you up. Mm -hmm. As a result, we have an unmitigated public health disaster that's called the undertreatment of chronic pain. It's a $100 billion a year lost in terms of productivity when you look at it economically and that's before you even start to consider the human suffering and the loss of the physician-patient relationship which has been taken over by law enforcement and that's one of the worst things that can happen to a society that's what happened in Nazi Germany.
0: Dr. Fisher, I I know that uh, in the interim, in the years when you were not allowed to practice you had a, a different avocation, helping out uh, other doctors who had been r- uh, lassoed, I suppose, by agents of the DEA or the state for supposedly overprescribing. I'm still doing that, and I'm helping out with
3: innocent doctors all over the country.
0: And, and tell us, uh, there's a recent story coming out of uh, Florida about the resentencing of some doctors. Tell us about that, please.
3: Actually, a South Carolina. It's the Myrtle Beach Comprehensive uh, Pain Clinic. Uh, there was a fellow named Woodward, a Yale-trained neurologist who was running this pain clinic, and they came after him. And they got him to cop a plea and take a sentence of 15 years, and he turned on all these locum tenens doctors who were working temporarily in his clinic. And most of them took a deal, too, because they didn't feel like they could fight the government, and they went to prison, and three of them fought it, Dr. Bordeaux, Dr. O'Leary, and Dr. Jackson, and they all got convicted. Almost every doctor gets convicted almost every time when the government puts them through these witch trials. See, they resemble real trials, but they're witch trials because it's all based on demonization, and the evidence is all what you would call spectral, like it was in Salem, Massachusetts, where the supposed victims of witchcraft saw the, the specter of whoever the witch was, haunting them in their dreams. What they do in these trials is they bring in these so-called pain experts or addiction experts to criticize the way the doctor practiced medicine as if that were evidence of criminal intent. Well, opioids represent the American people's deepest fear of evil. So when you demonize doctors like this and convince the jury that these doctors were prescribing this bad stuff and killing people, they don't have a chance. So we've been losing case after case, and it makes it unimaginably dangerous to practice medicine and to try to treat chronic pain compassionately. And, of course, 99.99% of physicians don't, which is why we have a pain crisis.
0: Well, from the story that I'm looking at, it seems that uh, a U.S. District Judge, Weston Hauk, changed Michael Jackson's sentence to 30 months from 292, which mm-hmm. is about 24 years or something, mm-hmm. and, and Deborah Bordos and Richard Alleres to 24 months from 97 and 235 months, respectively. Uh, Your thoughts on that, sir?
3: I've read the transcript of the trial, and Judge Houck was very skeptical of the idea that the government could put on what we would call standard of care evidence, like one would see in malpractice accusations, as if that were evidence of criminal intent. And he very specifically instructed the jury that it wasn't. But that just demonstrates that juries aren't able to sort this out. If the government is allowed to put that evidence on, they'll just assume that's evidence of criminality, and they'll go through the doctor's medical records during their deliberation and try to decide how well he practiced medicine as if it were a malpractice or a medical board case, and then the doctors go away for a very long time. So my understanding of why doctors why Judge Houck was willing to reduce these sentences so dramatically is that he understood this and he knows that what happened isn't fair. What I would add, though, is I've studied the medical records and I've read the transcript and I understand these doctors are innocent. So while it looks like something good happened today, this is a very bad thing because what it means to the American people is the war on drugs has become a war on sick people and nobody gets any pain control until that's over with
0: there are objections being raised there are several several dozen i think state attorneys general who have uh, in essence asked the dea to get out of the business of medicine in their state your thoughts the national
3: association of attorneys general wrote a letter to the dea after the dea reneged on several years of work trying to lay out some guidelines by which pain practitioners might function and not get into trouble. What happened is immediately before the trial of Doctor William Hurwitz, the prosecutors for the DEA got a look at these guidelines and they realized they wouldn't be able to get they wouldn't be able to convict Doctor Hurwitz. So somehow they got the higher ups at the D E A to just pull the document off the website and disavow it. So In academic pain medicine, all those guys are in a big stew over what happened there because they thought they were working with the DEA and they were going to solve the problem that way. And now they're just starting to suspect maybe the criminalization of these substances won't work and what we really need is a form of rational regulation so that the people who need them the most can get them.
0: Dr. Fisher, what this does and the the interim or in the long run, is to frighten doctors from providing the pain medicines that these patients so desperately need, and it leaves millions of Americans in the lurch, enduring pain unnecessarily. Your thoughts there? Exactly. A good
3: thing happened for these doctors today. They're not going to go to prison for as long as they might have, but when other physicians look at that, they're absolutely terrified. And they're not going to prescribe. And this situation is getting rapidly and dramatically worse. And it's already a disaster.
0: Well, Dr. Fisher, if, if people would like to learn more about this situation, uh, where might they go on the web?
3: Pain Relief Network is the best place to go for this. That's the only group that's doing advocacy that actually helps physicians and patients at this point. And. They should contribute generously because it's an unfunded organization. Drug policy organizations have actually managed to shut it out of the funding, even though it's doing the best and the most important work to mitigate the harm of the war on drugs. That's Pain Relief Network.
0: This drug war has no basis in reality. It is a war on our children and on our old and on our infirmed. Next week, I'm going to Santa Barbara for the Cannabis Therapeutics Convention, and I'll be bringing you reports from that. One of those who helped bring this conference to be is the director of Patients Out of Time, Mr. Al Byrne.
4: I'm the co-founder of an organization called Patients Out of Time. We do educational work about medical cannabis, and we specifically target that education towards healthcare professionals.
0: You guys are uh, helping to together an event that's coming up in the early part of April out in Santa Barbara. Please tell us about that.
4: Yes, yeah, this is the uh, fourth in a series of conferences that we began back in the year 2000. This will be uh, a national conference, and it's a clinical conference uh, on the cannabis therapeutics. That sounds very fancy and all, but, but really uh, a good 50% of the folks that attend are um, civilians trying to learn about medical cannabis for one reason or other are patients, and the others are social workers, nurses, and doctors. This conference will be held at the City College in Santa Barbara, and it's co-sponsored by the uh, California Nurses Association and the uh, University of California School of Medicine in San Francisco. So what we're dealing with here is high-quality science, that is uh backed up and substantiated, if you will, by the reputations of those organizations I just mentioned. And we deal with various maladies, various diseases, all of which are helped by cannabis. But we, we do specialize in uh I, I suppose in this conference uh in pain. We find that about seventy percent of the patients use it for some pain related problem.
0: When last we spoke, you told me of a young lady in Israel who uh, hopefully will be there to talk about the, uh, the impact on the brain from a stroke and how cannabis can help alleviate some of those symptoms. Uh, who might we expect to hear at this conference?
4: The lady you're referring to is Natalia Kogan. She's a Ph.D., um, a cannabinoid researcher. Really, that's what she got her doctorate in. She works out of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, in Israel, and she's a, uh, a student of Raphael Meshulam, who is the uh, preeminent scientist in this area, the man that uh, isolated THC back in the 60s. But she is, she's going to come and she's going to present data just of what you're talking about, that there, there is good, good uh, news that cannabis uh, can help uh, people with brain traumas of a certain type, Cannabis can help people with certain brain tumors. Both these areas have been looked at very, very strongly in Israel, and uh, this Dr. Kogan is going to uh, tell us all about that. Uh, this is an international cast. We, we have a fellow named Stuart Ratcliffe, a, a doctor, coming from uh, the Bart's Pain Research Center in uh, the United Kingdom, and he is a, he is a doctor that has... Gone through three different studies on the use of Sativex, which is a cannabis uh, tincture used out of the United Kingdom by GW Pharmaceuticals, on multiple sclerosis. He's going to tell us all about that, which which is sort of the, what's happening in the UK. Uh, we we also have Marcus uh, van de Velde, who's the head of the Office of Medical Cannabis uh, in the Netherlands, coming and he's going to discuss what the Netherlands is doing about issuing cannabis through pharmacies. It's a pharmacy-grade product. They issue it through a pharmacy, just like we issue products here through a pharmacy. There are say that it, Some say that it can't be done. Um, Dr. Van de Vel tells me that it's going quite well. Um, so there's, there's going to be a lot of import from Foreign uh, countries, if you will, overseas countries that have that have continued to do research even while American research lags behind. Um, other other folks will be coming down from Canada. There will be come, people coming from Spain, as well as, of course, all of the United States.
0: You know, Al, there are, I guess, dozens of reports, research that has been done on marijuana over the years, the decades, and in fact, uh, approximate century that we've had this uh, demonization of the the product, and uh, none of them have ever found that it leads to addiction to harder or drugs or, or any other such. Uh, they refute quite well what the government says. Your thoughts on that, sir?
4: Oh, I, I agree with you completely. Yes, I mean, I, just to repeat, every study done by every country on medical marijuana, including our own, and we've done many, um, and, and these, these, you know, all the big guys, Australia, you know, Netherlands, the United Kingdom, Germany. Um, every one of these studies has concluded that marijuana has medical value, that it shouldn't be criminalized or in some way, you know, marginalized from science or society. Uh, they, all, they are unanimous in that. So the decision for, um, for marijuana to be or cannabis to be, remain in Schedule One in this country is not supported by anything, nothing.
0: Well, Al, if folks would like to learn more about this forthcoming event, where might they go on the web?
4: they should go to www.medicalcannabis.com. Plenty of information there. There's a method of registering uh, using uh, PayPal. We'd love to have you. I'll, I'll tell your, your listeners that we are going to probably uh, sell this, the room out. At, uh, it, it maxes out about 250. So if, if they're interested, they better get to www.medicalcannabis.com pretty quick.
0: I recently hooked up with another member, of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, Mr. Terry Nelson.
1: I first entered federal service in 1974 as a Border Patrol agent in El Paso, Texas. I served there uh, for about eight years, and a period of time I also went to the academy as an instructor in law and operations, in deportation law and operations. And I came back and I transferred to Florida. and worked there for a year around uh, the central part of Florida, and then I uh, went over to the Department of Treasury as a uh, custom patrol officer running the boats down in the Florida Keys for a few years. And then eventually I ended up as an inspector at uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, and from there I went over to the Aviation Marine Program. And uh, the last 10, 12 years of my career I spent in that, intercepting uh, narcotics air shipments and boat and vessel shipments into the United States.
0: Now, Terry, the the fact is, despite your valiant efforts and that of uh, thousands of other uh, federal officials, the flow of drugs has not been squelched. What's your thoughts, sir? Can we ever stop that flow?
1: Well, they not only haven't been squelched, they've increased uh, every year, even though we've increased apprehension, I mean, uh, interdiction of the narcotics. The actual amount coming in has increased every year. So, no, we, we can't stop it. Uh, um, we should recognize that now because we've tried, and drugs are cheaper, more plentiful than they were 30 years ago, so how can we call it success? Now, you can't legislate morality and you can't force people to do things so we have to find another way of, of fighting this battle because the, one we're, the way we're doing it now is, 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 has failed.
0: I, I know that back in the day I used to receive the red bud that you guys didn't stop from coming from Columbia, and I know to this day children are still having easy access to drugs. Is that because of our policy?
1: It probably in part, uh, but bear in mind that all the, all the drugs that come to the United States, especially the, the type you spoke of, probably might be a colombian bread. But uh, it's estimated as much as 70 80 percent of the drugs consumed, of the marijuana consumed in the United States has grown domestically, and some of that on national parkland. It's just not, we cannot stop it. We can't control it. So there's only, only one way to handle it, and would be to legalize, regulate it, and control it that way. We can't do it the way we're doing it now.
0: Well, uh, Terry, I know that you were invited to speak at a regional NIDA conference. That's the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Uh, how were you received?
1: I was received quite well, uh, very interesting uh, probing questions, and uh, several members of the group came up to privately to congratulate me and say that this is a message that needs to be said. Uh, I, I mean, I understand their political position because they get most of their funding from the federal government, but they're not stupid people. They're very intelligent people, and they also understand that something new needs to be done.
0: Well, Terry, you are a member of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Their website is leap, L-E-A-P dot C-C. That's a coalition of uh, some several hundred former law enforcement officials and some 5,000
1: uh, friends of LEAP. Tell us about that organization. LEAP is uh, well, just what you just said. that's a, a group of law enforcement officers that are banded together to get the message out that the drug war has failed and is doing more harm than good. I didn't think anyone fought the way I did. For years, I'd talked about it in meetings at work, and then was told, uh, "You carry out the policy of the United States government; you don't make it," which was a true statement. But uh, once I got out, I found this other group, and uh, I agreed with them. And so, I first group I've ever joined, and I joined LEAP. So I'm now a full-fledged speaker and a member of of LEAP. Well, Terry, I know that
0: you uh, speak to Rotary clubs and and other. Uh, fraternal-type organizations, as well as uh, speaking to NIDA. But I think the one place we'd both like to uh, have a few minutes to discuss this policy of uh, uh, prohibition would be, say, at a police patrolman's union. What do you have to say to those officers out there on the border or uh, out walking the beat about this this violent uh, situation?
1: Tell them to keep their head down and powder dry. It's a... Unwinnable situation for them. I, I believe this has probably caused uh, the public to lose a lot of respect for the police, and also it's, uh, according to chiefs of police, it's caused uh, recruiting problems to get new police officers because of this. I'm assuming it's for the lack of respect that you, one gets anymore. Uh, one of the things I remember as an early officer was uh, the public did at least respect the police officers, and I see that having that det- deteriorated a lot, and, and some of that can probably be due to uh, you know enforcing unpopular laws.
0: And, and so far as those down there on the border, there's a lot of uh, ugly things happening uh, throughout Mexico and Colombia, but in particular right now in Nuevo Laredo where it's... Uh, become almost like the Iraq War. There are daily deaths, there are bodies burning outside of town, etc. We can end that, can we not?
1: Well, we can't end it, but uh, it'll have to... uh, I mean, if we, we, the United States, stopped uh, making it illegal to have drugs in this country and uh, we could get them all legalized and the government would produce them, then you could take the criminal element out of it. Thus, uh, there would be no criminal element in it and they wouldn't have the money or there wouldn't be the profits where they could pay the bribes and stuff to uh, corrupt officials, or to corrupt new officials. To the officers out there doing the job, uh, it, it is appreciated. I know they're doing the best they can. It's just uh, the war has been lost, and we need to uh, we need to fold our tents and, and develop a new strategy. Because after 30 years and over a trillion dollars being spent, and another you know approximately 79, 80 billion dollars a year going down the hole, that money could be much better used for other things, and just. Uh, Keep the faith, and we'll do the best we can to try to get the laws changed.
0: It's time to play Name That Drug by Its Side Effects. According to the BBC, this drug has no known side effects. The drug contains a molecule 10,000 times as active as glucose. It goes to the midbrain and makes those nerve cells fire as if you were full, but you have not eaten. Time's up. The answer P57. Houdia from a Kalahari desert cactus marketed by Pfizer. Look for the ads in your email. You know, I grow almost weary from trying to get the drug czar or the head of the DEA or a cop or a sheriff or anybody to come on this program and defend this policy of eternal drug war. But, of course, they never even nibble at the offer of $1,200 cash, because they're cowards.
5: Well, I've been gone for a while, but I'm back now, and wouldn't you know it, the drug war didn't end. There's so many people worth thanking at the ONDCP and the DEA, but most of all, I want to thank you, the listener. Your inaction makes it all possible, and so, I dedicate this to you. You are so beautiful. Thank you so much. We couldn't do it without you.
6: You are
5: so beautiful. You're either with us or against us, and you are with us. Can't you
4: see
2: everything I hope
5: for? You're everything we hope for. You're everything we need.
0: You are so beautiful.
5: Sincerely, thank you. This has been Winston Francis with the official Government Truth.
6: And now for another Black Perspective on the Drug War. Marijuana has been called a gateway drug, which seduces its users into involvement with other, more dangerous drugs. But is it really? I seriously doubt it. If a gateway exists, it's in the lies of the drug war. For decades, we have been bombarded with drug war messages about marijuana-inducing homicidal mania reefer madness, brain damage that produces memory loss, genetic damage, hopelessly enslaved addicts, and amotivational syndrome that turns bright energetic people into hollow-eyed losers. We warn our children to watch out for the dope peddler, a shadowy boogeyman in a trench coat that haunts the playgrounds and schoolyards, handing out joints to children. But what happens when these stories are found to be lies? There is no boogeyman, just the buddy you grew up with. And he wouldn't hurt you. No madness, no dementia, no brains frying like eggs in a skillet. What happens when we lie about marijuana is our credibility gets shot. And from then on, our warnings about heroin, PCP, and other harder drugs fall on deaf ears. Marijuana is not a gateway, but the drug wars campaign of marijuana lies is for the drug truth network this is phil jackson
5: members of congress have loudly criticized the administration for its failure to develop a workable action plan against methamphetamine they have also blasted attempts by the white house to cut some of the money being appropriated for anti-methamphetamine law enforcement yet as with everything in dc there is more to the story than meets the eye in this case the truth is hidden inside a pork barrel The Justice Department's Office of the Inspector General released a report earlier this week which blasted the department's community-oriented policing services office for its anti-methamphetamine funding program. The IG was critical of the administration's failure to develop a plan, yet the report also nailed members of Congress for being the cause of much of the problem. Among its conclusions, the IG's office noted that, quote, Congressional earmarks have heavily influenced the meth initiative since its inception in 1998. However, the significant use of earmarks in this endeavor has not ensured that grant funds are directed to locations with the greatest need. Because the COPS Office has been reactive to the spending specifications of Congress, it has not been in the position to assert full control over the program, including the establishment of program goals and measurements. However, without a more strategic plan for the use of the significant funding available through this program, the COPS Office's attempts to address the meth crisis likely will continue to yield variable results." End quote. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org. Poppygate,
0: bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway.
2: Under so-called American liberation, Afghanistan has become the world's preeminent narco state, now producing six and a half times more heroin than the rest of the world combined, production having risen nearly 30-fold in the last four years. Just back from Afghanistan, Republican Congressman Mark Souter of Indiana, chairman of the House Subcommittee on Drug Policy, offers his firsthand account. Quote, I had no conception of this much heroin, heroin as far as the eye can see, miles and miles and miles. This is an international disaster. End quote. There are new reports that after being promised money by U.K. counter-narcotics officers for destroying their poppies, at least 400 farmers in Afghanistan's Helmand province have discovered that Her Majesty's checks have bounced. In total, the farmers allege they are owed $21 million and are planning to sue. Reflecting massive availability, the price of heroin in parts of Cape Cod is now down to $2 a dose, according to local authorities. This is Gwen Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network.
5: My name is
0: Angel Rage. I'm a mother of two teenage children, and I fought all the way to the Supreme Court for the right to use the medicine that saved my life. I've been permanently disabled for 10 years. The medicine that gave me my life back and gave my kids their mom back was cannabis, also known as medical marijuana. To learn more about medical marijuana, contact Marijuana Policy Project at 1-877-JOIN-MPP or on the web at mpp.org. If you'd like to hear more about Angel Rach and her recent proceedings before the Ninth Circuit Court, please listen to this week's Century of Lies. In closing, I remind you that because of prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guthie, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Tap oh, oh. dancing, pannier to cannabis. <laughs>